Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. And we are back. Our second season is pretty much about notions of practice. We will be exploring how cultural producers do their work, whether they are artists, designers, curators or writers. And together we will figure out how they position themselves within the larger context that they inhabit. So welcome back to this new season of Ahali Conversations. In this episode, we are in conversation with Bonaventure Sobejang Dikung. He's best known as the artistic director of Savvy, the laboratory of form ideas, a self-organized art institution located in Berlin. He was recently appointed as the new director of the Haus der Kulturen der Welt in Berlin, and he was also curator at large for Documenta 14, as well as guest curator for many international exhibitions, and also the artistic director of Sonsbeek, 2020 and 2024. We'll hear from Bonaventure on the importance of positioning oneself within collaboration, but always in response and with responsibility. He's someone who didn't wait for legitimization and instead went ahead to create a space with his fellows and let things emerge from that space. And of course, from the people who ended up hanging out there. We will hear his take on how the institutions at place can indeed be changed by the people who actually have a claim on these institutions. And in retrospect, and not surprisingly, this is exactly what the institutions themselves need. So how the embedded violence and discrete notions of race and superiority can be challenged without losing remembrance is another takeaway that Bonaventure offers. And its enthusiasm on music also unravels towards the end. So make sure to take note of his recommendations. Also a final note before we start. We'll be sharing visual samples from the works we discuss on Instagram. So make sure to check out our account, ahali.podcast, to get glimpses of the projects that we discuss today. Welcome Bonaventure. Thanks for taking the time to joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. It's a great pleasure. So where are you now? Where do we catch you? Where are you in as a state of mind and also maybe as location? As a state of mind, it's more difficult to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I just came out of an interview on the voice, using the voice in sound in sound art. So that is my state of mind, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking of the voice. But physically, I'm in Berlin at Savvy Contemporary. I'm alone here this morning and it's it's quite good. So one can focus on certain things before the colleagues come in. They're all wonderful, but sometimes it's just good to, to do some work alone. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just a small note, I need to address that we are in Turkey at the moment near the Asian coast and there are lots of wildfires taking place. So I just want to take the moment to recognize that reality as we speak, there seems to be like simultaneous emergencies and we keep doing what we do, but it's important to recognize as well, I think. 
Yes, I would also just like to uh, pass on my feelings and sentiments to to all the people that have, you know, been caught up in this. You know, I can only imagine how difficult it is for certain people that have lost friends and relatives and property and the daily bread and so on. So, but it also forces us to think about the time in which we live. You know, and and the consequences of our activities on this planet that we all share. You know, and that's a basic truth. It doesn't matter if you're in Wuhan or you're in, in Turkey at the Asian coast or in Norway. The whatever we do has consequences, has repercussions. You know, on other parts of the world, and we cannot, we can no longer afford to be short-sighted. We cannot afford to be selfish yeah. and think just of ourselves because you might think that it's, it has consequences on the others but it's going to catch up with you yeah. at some point so yes my feelings to to all those and to you all thank you so much and totally agree and let's say this question of responsibility can maybe coincide with this as well but i want to start from like what drove you to setting up Savvy Contemporary. I know that you like started life in Cameroon and then uh, went to Berlin to study biotechnology, as far as I'm uh, correct. And then you moved on to the arts in terms of practicing it. I mean, I think arts is always already kind of somehow embedded or entangled in our lives, but you decided to practice it. And then you ended up setting up this space or this kind of unique institution in a sense. So maybe let's start from there. Like what were the things that drove you? What were the questions you had in mind or burning issues you had? So Savvy is a space that is actually run by 20 plus people. You know, it's it's always very, in my opinion, unfortunate that it, it comes across as if it's no individual can do such a thing. Mm-hmm. So I also want to take the, the, the time and space to acknowledge the many people that make Savvy happen, you know, that, that, you know, do a lot of sacrifices to make a space like this run, run properly with a lot of love and a lot of care, you know, and going extra miles to make things happen. But these are all people that have, in one way or the other, found themselves in Berlin. Most of them coming from different countries and different parts of Germany that found themselves in Berlin and have all been looking for some common denominators. We have, we actually live in societies, and this doesn't matter if it's in Cameroon, in Turkey, or in Germany, or in Korea for that matter, or wherever, in which the idea of division is more seductive than being together. Mm-hmm. So if you find yourself in such a space, one of the things you could possibly do is to create a space where people could be together. And basically, I think that was one of the intentions, you know, maybe one could find like-minded, like-spirited people, people that have a cause or that are prepared to also to disagree, you know, disagree with with the current state of being, you know, with a kind of a normative structure that is imposed on others, you know, claim of a certain normativity of whiteness that one one finds everywhere and the claim of a single narrative of history that basically a couple of us didn't want to accept, you know. And I came to Berlin at the age of 20. So as as a 
<laughs> young man wanting to see the world, wanting to study, wanting to, to experience life, but always confronted with a, na- a notion that I wasn't really familiar with, you know, which was a notion of race, you know, a, a notion of, you know, somebody that assumes themselves or, you know, superior to you just because of a certain color of the skin or notion of superiority, you know, which I wasn't ready to accept and still I'm not ready to accept. And so having studied and done all I had to do, you know, as a a scientist, as an engineer, um, but interested in the arts, the question was, can we come together, create a space in which we can think together in which we do not need legitimization from others to be able to do what we want to do, in which we can, you know, find for ourselves a certain philosophical, but also moral and ethical standpoint or vantage point from which to act and to exist. Mm-hmm. So it was basically, it was basically that. It was basically that. So all the projects we do, as far and wide as they might sound, as deep and, you know, conceptual as they might sound, some it's basically about creating a space in which we can think together, in which we can try to also think about what it means to be human in this world. Mm-hmm. And also how to position oneself as cultural producers in the landscape that you elaborated very clearly. And in terms of, let's say, I mean, you often refer to it as being plural things at once. And I was curious, like, and you mentioned that it's actually a kind of community that gathered around this idea and action uh, and the space, the setting, which is Savi. So I was curious, like, did these plural things at once, like being a library, being a maybe documentation center, being a hanging out space, being a place where you have coffee and chat or what have you. And if I'm pronouncing correctly, a Nijangi house or Jangi house. So did these emerge organically? Like you as a group, did you have a plan from the beginning or did you let it evolve? A lot of it emerged organically. You know, those Cause an original impulse, you know, sometimes when you throw a stone in water, you don't know how the ripples would look like, but you set the stone, you know, and it was more like that. Some of the things just come up, you know, but what was sure was that we wanted to create this kind of a, as you, you rightly said, a place of hanging out, you know, where we come, you know, where people cook, we have a drink together, where at some point, It was like if you if you're flying into Berlin from somewhere in the world, people would tell you pass by Sabi and you come. We've never met you before, but we open the door, ask you, you want a coffee, you want a tea, you want a beer, we sit down, we talk as if we've known each other for 20 years. So now that is why we came up with this notion of uh, radical hospitality, you know, or, or, or radical conviviality, you know, yeah. how to impose some kind of friendliness in despite very dire conditions in which we can find find ourselves sometimes. So it was about, it was really about that. The idea of the plurality, you know, is something that is very important to me. Again, you know, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, this lie we've been told that you're an individual, you know, or that you you're singular and all those things, you know, those are, to me, those are, 
actually things that are part of the superiority complex. You're not actually very singular. We, we, there's a lot of things. Of course, we have things that we, we you know, that kind of fingerprints, but we share a lot of things in common, and that's important. And by the way, even within your own self, you're multiple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we're multiple beings, you know, that's why this whole idea of gender, you're, you're, you're male or you're female and so those they, they don't mean anything, you know? So we, we might also embrace that multitude. So it, it's something that has accompanied me for many years. And, and actually the, the work we're planning now for the next Bamako Biennial is on, on multiplicity, you know, it's on plurality. It's, it's really about thinking beyond the singularities and, and embracing the multiple beings that find themselves in us. Yeah. And I think that resonates a lot with uh, Ahali, like the title of our gathering series, because it refers to, let's say it's a sense of community that's independent from the community defining dimensions that can easily become oppressive, like religion or place of origin or kinship and things like that. Uh, whereas it offers a kind of gathering that's still meaningful, mm. but it can be whoever. And traditionally it's being somewhere related more to being somewhere, mm-hmm. but the way we take it or we wish to take it is also like wherever you are, mm-hmm. you can be part of that. And, and it's not fixed. So it's not a kind of, it's always generating new knowledge, hopefully. And so I think that resonates a lot with mm. the kind of term under which we are also trying to organize. Very interesting. You know, when I was looking up for the translation of a Hali, I found somewhere that it meant population. I don't know if that's right, you know. No, the people, let's say the people. The people. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very good. Very, very, very interesting. There was a, a very important work that was done by Hans Hacke, mm-hmm. German artist. It's difficult to translate it, you know, because he was asked in the 90s to do this work at the, the Bundestag in the Palliantist. And, you know, you've had this whole controversy about that folk, the folk, the people, mm. Germany, which was some, a notion that was misappropriated in the Nazi period and so on and so forth. So Hans Hacke, in his installation, which was in the garden, wrote, he didn't use the word the people, but he used the population, mm. which I found very interesting because he said the people tries to singularize the people. Mm. Population multiplies and pluralizes the people, which is very interesting because in German, the word is das Volk, and then uh, the word for population is the Bevölkerung, you know? So the folk is still there, but the Bevölkerung expands it. And I find that very powerful. But almost 30 years down the line, he revisited the work for, doc- for Documenta 14. And since then, he's done several editions of it, in which he says, Wir alle sind das Volk. We all are the people, <laughs> you know? So he goes back to this notion of the people that's folk. And he says, actually, the people must be multiple. So we all yeah. are the people. So I found that very interesting. Exactly. I mean, that's what we kind of, how we frame Ahali as that second uh, notion of the people that Hake uh, mm. touches on. And now Savi continues, but you are moving on to the helm of a 
more, let's say, institution or an establishment, the house, their culture and their wealth. And with regards to what we've been discussing and looking at your previous debates as well, I wanted to touch upon this notion of there's almost a kind of immunity investment in how Western institutions, like whether tokenistically or genuinely, invest in non-white, non-male, non-central European practices in the last decades, obviously. And of course, there is like huge potential in that, but sometimes it's like makes one wonder like whether that will that these practices will eventually tilt the status quo or are they more like at acts of diversification to sustain the canon and i'm curious like what's your take on these practices it's an interesting question you know i've written a lot about the canon and i wrote a paper called decanonization as method and so i'm really concerned with issues of the canon and so on and so forth now I know where the question is coming from and I see we've been asking for many years, for decades upon decades, that we want to, you know, have space in some of these institutions. I particularly have not been asking for space in this institution because I'm not really interested in that. But a lot of us have been asking for those spaces. What is very interesting is as soon as that happens, then we ask ourselves, but is this tokenism? Are we supposed to be in these institutions and so on and so forth? So it's a paradox. It's a conundrum, which we actually have to free ourselves from. It's as if we're asking, but we're scared to assume responsibility, right? Yeah. What does that mean then? It means that the change we're actually claiming or fighting for, we don't really want. <laughs> so that's the funny thing about it. I personally don't believe in changing institutions, especially from within and so on and so forth. No, that's why I was really interested in creating a new institution together with other people, right? I believe that that is what we all have to do. We need to, the, the fact is that one of the, one of the means of decanonization is not creating another singular canon, but creating multiplicity of canons such that it makes the idea of the canon redundant. That's one possibility. One, another possibility is to make the canon porous, such that those who found themselves in the canon before, suddenly, through a kind of a process of osmosis, get out of it and others come in. But then if they, if they do relevant work, they can still come back in. <laughs> <laughs> so a canon which doesn't, you know, because you are, you know, Thomas Mann, you have to be there for the rest of your life. No. When others come in, they kick you out. And then if for some reason, at a particular time, your, works, your, your work becomes more relevant, you can come back in. So that's another possibility. The, other, the third possibility is just to dismantle the whole thing about canons. Why do we need them? You know. So these are three ways of looking at it. Now, what concerns me is that I'm interested in institutions mm -hmm. as spaces of becoming. So I'm not interested in an institution per se. I'm interested in the notion of instituting. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in establishments per se, but I'm interested in establishing. So the question is a question of method. So is there a possibility of getting into such a place like the House of World Cultures and work within that paradigm of instituting rather than managing an institution? If there's a possibility, I'm happy to be there. If there's no possibility, I won't be happy to be there, right? I'm not bound to it. We have to, we have to work with it. Is it what we call institutions are actually very malleable structures or should be malleable structures. Yeah. And if they're not malleable, then that the fact about it is, Chan, 
Well, the fact about it is that a lot of these institutions in the West, which we're talking about, they've actually become quite redundant. They've actually, in my opinion, one of the biggest battles of our time is institutions finding their relevance within our own time, within our age, within our era. So to be honest with you, I see a lot of people like you and me getting into these institutions not be, not necessarily because, of course, there are examples of people being tokens, but it's not necessarily because of that. It's because a lot of these institutions have come to a cul-de-sac, a kind of a dead end, yeah. in which they need people to liberate them from this dead end. Now, you said in the past 10 years, a lot has been done with, uh, say, appropriating of knowledges and structures and so on and so forth. Now, the truth about it is that to whom does this institution actually belong? Yeah. I am a taxpayer. The people from 191 different countries that live in Berlin are taxpayers. The thousands of people that are descendants of the people that were brought into this country as Gastarbeiter, they are taxpayers. The thousands of people of African origin who didn't ask for their continent to be partitioned in Berlin, who some of whom came in to fight for the French in the First and the Second World War, whose descendants are still here. They didn't ask to be that. Cameroon didn't ask to be colonized by the, by the Germans. So we find ourselves in this place and we're contributing into the building of the society. This society is not a monochromatic society. It's a society that belongs to us all. Now, the question is that, why should it be, should I have a complex about being at the head of such an institution? Why? I mean, to be honest about it, it's just a fact. You know, we've done quite important work within this country and Europe and, and the rest of the world. It's just as it is, you know. And there are very few curators and artists that have done the kind of work that Xavier has done in the past 12 years. It's just as it is, you know. So the question would be, if I'm in any case paying my taxes for the making of such an institution, I could as well be at the head of it and direct it into a way that is more conducive to the people that are like me in this society and the rest of the world. Why not? It's called the House of World Cultures. Totally. No, this was like deliberately asked to <laughs> hear this from you. <laughs> no, no, I, I hear that very well and I know where it's coming from. But the thing is that at the end of the day, we have to claim responsibility. For sure. You know, I don't believe in pointing fingers at people. I don't believe in, you know, criticizing and when the moment comes, then you, you chicken out. No, let's take it. And if we're given the possibility of doing the work, we'll do a great job. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Thanks for this response. I mean, it's, I think it was really valuable to hear this from you. And also with regards to just what you said is then that's also the only way that the, this, like we've been discussing, or let's say the more decolonial thought has been discussing uh, this question of other epistemologies or situated knowledges. And what you've just outlined is, seems to me to be the only way that these can truly or start the process of becoming to expand the cultural field in in general, into more, let's say, pluriversal understanding of cultural production and also not becoming really other epistemologies and not becoming epistemologies of the other. Mm. Because most often so far is also like that was part of my criticism with regards to this notion that you elaborated on so vividly was that it's also something to 
take care or take notice of or care about with regards to all these situated knowledges not becoming epistemologies of the other, as in a, let's say, more kind of 19th century onwards anthropological sense, but truly become epistemologies in the plural. Mm. And, and mm. that that needs, I think, that necessitates agency and that necessitates action and that necessitates taking steps. Truly. But you're completely right, you know. So what we've noticed is that ethnographic and anthropological museums around the world are in a terrible crisis, right? One of the crises is that who's the other? Yeah. Who's the other? That's just, just a question, you know. The other was quite clear 200 years ago. Even in until 1989, it was very clear who the other was. Yeah. In 2021, it's not so clear who the other is. <laughs> so that is it. So the legitimacy of such institutions is then questioned. Completely. And maybe that begs the question, like, should we tear them down or should we transform from within for them to become something? And maybe we can link this to the question of, uh, let's say, traditions of art in public space, commemoration, monuments and things like that. So how to deal with how to deal with monuments is, I think, as relevant a question as how to deal with these kind of institutions in their ancient form, so to say. So, you know, Jan, th th this is a very important question. Now, no matter the an answer I give you, it will be problematic. <laughs> no matter. So let me put it this way. I think we have to go on a case-by-case -case basis. If we have a statue of somebody who was particularly violent mm -hmm. in history, say yeah. Cecil Rhodes, particularly vicious person. I am for the fact that we need to tear it down. Yeah. Some of them, we don't have to. I don't believe in tabula rasa. I believe we need, I believe in contextualization. So as I said, as I was trying to say a few minutes ago, one of the things we would have to do is find new answers to existing questions and then pose new questions. To find new answers to existing questions is to find new meaning to existing structures, institutions, whatever you want to call them. And the other, the second possibility of finding que new questions is creating new structures. That is it. It has to be a two-way street, you know. So I don't think belief in a singular answer as the ultimate answer, you know. The idea of creating a space like Savvy was because a lot of the institutions that were existing at the time didn't see people like myself in them. So I would go to an institution and they would, for some reason, not want to let me in or uh, not want me to, to curate an exhibition there. And one of the things is, Chan, we've been fooled that the solution is an economic one, that the economic liberation is going to set you free. But we know it doesn't function. You know, people like Henry Louis Gates have been stopped, you know, one of the greatest intellectuals in America has been stopped and checked by police and so on and so forth just because he's a black man. Somebody like Fiesta Gates just posted on Instagram yesterday that they refused him from entering into a restaurant because he had a, a pullover with a hood on. Wow. This is one of the most important artists in the world. You know, rich fellow, everything. But it doesn't save him from that. So to me, we have to question that. It's not only an economic thing. So we have to create our own institutions. We have to create institutions in which you're not questioned where you can come in because you wear a hoodie, right? 
So that is it. At the same time, we have to restructure those institutions that do not want to let you in because you have a degree. Yeah. You know, so it has to be always a two-way street, you know. So so this is it. So now, if you take the example of the of the street names, renaming streets and so on and so forth, you know. This is something I wanted to talk with you as well. There's a certain violence enacted in space, you know, just because a street is named in a particular way, right? Now, totally. I personally, I do not believe in the fact that the existing street name just has to be erased. No. I am for giving a new name to that street, but underneath that name, you put the name of the old street and you give a long contextualization as to why it had to be changed. Yeah. Okay? So the plaza in front of Savi is the Netterbeck Platz. Nobody knows why it's Netterbeck Platz. So if this is ever changed one day, I don't want the name Netterbeck Platz to completely go away. So if it has a new name, say the Chan Altai Platz, then underneath that Uh, uh, name, we need to put Netterbeck Platz, formerly known as Netterbeck Platz, and explain why this place had to be changed. Okay. That to me is the way forward. Yeah. So not to repeat the erasure, maybe because it, maybe it wasn't always called Netterbeck Platz, but the, the moment it was called that, there is also an erasure. Exactly. And I mean, in Istanbul, for a long while, we lived in the Armenian neighborhood, commonly known as Kurtulush. It's again a changed uh, name for the uh, neighborhood. And all the street names, and I'll remind that this is an Armenian neighborhood. Yes. All the street names are named after ultra-nationalistic mythological figures and like Turkic superiority and things like that, Ergenekon, Boskurt, all these kind of names. And it's like, I always felt the the violence that just the street names were imposing uh, yes. on the place. And in that sense, that resonates to a great extent, but your call asks us to not to erase the name or maybe return to its origin, but keep a reminder that this happened and that... But, you know, one day, some other person will come in power that would want to restitute, to the process of restitution might happen in that space in which they will want to have the Armenian names back. That is very possible. Why not? But the question is, what do you do? Do you just take away this Turkic, this myth of the great Turkic nation, you know? Would you just take that away? No. If you do that, then there will be a repetition of this violence. Yeah. Okay? And it means that 50 years down the line, another person will come and reimagine this. So basically, what has to be done is a contextualization to say there was an incredible erasure, not only of the Armenian people, but their history within that space called Turkey. Okay? And that this erasure happened also within this, this public space. You know, and you ask the question about public art and memory yeah, and the, the politics of memory. So the question then becomes, and this is it. This, to me, this is it. Because, you know, I, I, I teach a course on this. Who remembers? Who is the person remembering? So is it, and so we have to make a differentiation between institutional memory and public memory. Mm-hmm. Now, what we see with a lot of these statues a lot of these street names are the epitome of institutional memory because the state 
or the city or whoever in power wants you to remember this. In many of the cases, it falls within the realm of propaganda or, you know, the power structures, government machination. But actually, what does the people actually want to remember? So if one did a, a census in that in Kotoluj, what would the people want to remember? That would be interesting. Yeah. You know, so and I think, and not even just the changed people, you know, since but people that were there before, what would they want to how what, what would they want to have that the streets call? And that is something we need to keep in mind. Yeah. And maybe that's I mean, both the contextualization and what you just said links maybe in my mind at least perfectly to your emphasis on storytelling. And you know, because there is on the one hand there's the gesture, be it violent or be it in a way generous. And on the other hand, there is the storytelling, there's the contextualization, there is the kind of narrativizing almost of conditions or of actions, of realities. And maybe if it's not a too much of a stretch, we can link that to Sonsbeek and hear from you a little bit how you position that the idea of the voice or the sound and the story. It's it's not a stretch at all because Sonsbeek is also an exhibition of art in public space. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so it's not a stretch. Uh, and the, the question that came in was, one, what is public space? And who is the public, actually? <laughs> you know, to whom does the public space actually belong? You know, if you go to Anhem, where Sonsbeck is, at certain times of the day, you don't see people like you and me. You don't, because they're all working. <laughs> <laughs> they're not, the public space doesn't belong to them then. the certain times they come out. Now, I'm interested in this. But how do you do it? How the question is how do you to, to me it's always about the strategy of narration. You know, curatorial practice is narration. So what tools would you use? What utensils? What figures of speech? You know, what metaphors can you use to be able to narrate your story without making somebody listening to you just feel as if you're making a, an accusation? Mm. I'm interested in that. I'm not really interested in the frontal. No, mm. I'm interested. You know, this is, is a, there's a saying in French that it goes, Cherchez midi à 14. You know, it says, you're look, looking for midday at 14 o'clock. I really love that. <laughs> you know, a translation in English would be beating around the bush. But there's something beautiful about that. Not just coming directly, frontally into something. But going through that, that to me is actually what poetry is. You know, finding words that say, but with another weight scale. And you can say everything. So that, so that was it. So the idea of storytelling, of narrating, came up with this. And it's always been there. It's also always accompanied us, you know, especially the work we do at Savi. But again, so we had, we, we, we've invited over 40 artists to do works, installations in public and so on and so forth. And the whole thing, as conceived from the beginning, was on level, so force times distance, which is the formula for work. Mm-hmm. And the subtitle was on level and the sonic ecologies, you know. So the idea was, how can we use sound as a possibility of telling all the stories, you know? And as I told you, that I just came from a conversation about the voice. The voice plays a very important role there. You know, what pitch you use, what tone you use, what texture of the voice, 
You understand? Where do you lay emphasis on this, on what syllable in, in the word and so on? How do you, what tempo, what, how do you stretch, what pace do you use? You know, they all play a role in as narrative devices, yeah. you know. So this is it. So how do you translate that into a kind of exhibition space, you know? Although I don't think of Sunspec as an exhibition, but as a kind of a manifestation, you know, mm. an occurrence, a becoming, you know, where we've been working on something and then, you know, in this bigger conversation and then something appears. I'm interested in that, you know. How do we use these devices to also to make people feel that they're part of it? You know, in my culture, when you're telling a story, you, you, you start by saying, uh, and then people on this reply, you know, which, which is a way of drawing people's attention and making sure that everybody is with you, that it becomes participatory, you know. So how can you use these devices of narration into exhibition-making practices? Mm -hmm. you know? So that is it. And conceived as a double edition of a quadrennial, so we have time. We really wanted to have this time also not to just pop in, do something and disappear, but also kind of situate ourselves within that place, you know, and find a way of working with people around. Yeah, no, sounds interesting. So it's like, I didn't get that. It's two two editions. You are doing two editions. So that's why it's 2024. Exactly. It was supposed to be in 2020 uh, and then 2024, but we started in 2021 and it will be 2024. Mm. And then in the period between these two editions, we'll be doing different collaborations with institutions and an exhibition in State League, an exhibition in Central Museum and a couple of other residencies and other things, you know, in between. No, but I really like the way you kind of position the exhibition as a manifestation and it's calling for some exchange as well, and it's not a fixed reality per se. Uh, I think that's really strong. And for the audience, I'll just put a parenthesis that Sonsbeek is this, I think, very interesting historically as well, a uh, series of exhibitions. And sometimes, like back in the day, I used to, when I was teaching art in public space, I used to always show the film, uh, Jeff Cornelis's TV program, Buiten de Parken, Mm -hmm. That's like on this 1971 edition of the Sonsbeek. Wim Beren was a curator of that one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And lots of land art stars and also many people. But the whole program, the whole video in itself is also a case, I think, in terms of... Totally, totally. <laughs> totally. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a beautiful historical piece and you know, questioning also the role of art in society, you know. Exactly. When at some point they talk about the, the work of Joseph Boyce that was in some village somewhere of that was barely seen by 80-something people, you know. It's, it's very interesting because it was considered to be one of the biggest failures mm. of art history at the time, but now considered one of the most important exhibitions of the 20th century. Yeah, you know? exactly. Wow, this was great. I mean, I had many, quite a few more questions, but it might be worthwhile hearing from our small group of participants here. So maybe we can open up the questions. Sure. Ahali conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email.
So I have a question for both of you. When you talk about Savi and Ahali, to a certain extent, we can call you the originators, right? And you both don't refer your fellows or subscribers as constituents, but members. Am I correct? So that made me curious. What kind of, what do you think of membership mechanisms? What I mean, is there a sense of written or unwritten protocol of how the members operate, communicate? Is contribution necessary, for instance? Can you opt out? Do you ever kick anyone <laughs> out? So yeah, that's the question. I don't know if I said members, but I would take it. Um, I think we're co-travelers. I think we're embarking on a journey together. And membership is something that seems to be quite corporate. But I'll assume it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Now, what does it mean as well? You also call your arm a member. You call your leg a member because these are parts of your body. And, the, you know, uh, you more or less need your head to function. So if we say that these are members, then they're all part of a body and each part of that body is necessary for the body to function. You could also say, of course, you can do, you can live with one arm. Many people do. You can live with one kidney, what people do. But if you had two, it's better. It works. So I'm looking at it from that perspective, you know, of members, but also thinking of it from the perspective of remembering in which you also have members inside, you know, in the notion of thinking together, you know, and putting different members together as a process of recollecting. You know, we talked about memory and memory work earlier. So this too is part of it. So I see it as the following. All these people that make Savvy happen, I think that's what I said in the beginning, if you want to call them members, they could be understood as members from these two ends, as part of a functioning body, and we need each of them to make the body function, and, and in that context of remembering. Now, do we? does the team change? Of course it does, especially as part of the work at Savvy happens on a voluntary basis as well. So we pay part of your being here and the other part you, you volunteer. And people get tired from that and it's normal, you know. So there is that element of care that is there and that we need to have for people also to step back and regenerate after giving. You cannot give so much energy for the rest of your life, you know. So it's also fine when people say, okay, we want to step back and, you know, and so on. And what we've also noticed in the past years is that a couple of people from Savvy also get into other institutions, you know, and I'm, I'm happy about that, you know, because they carry the spirit of Savvy into these places, you know, and hopefully would shift from institutions to instituting. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I really do like the membership within Remembrance. I'm going to think about that soon. Well, I can't help but jump into the conversation if you don't mind. So on membership, bands also have members and not necessarily always functioning members, right? When we look at Sandra's orchestra, let's say, like while everyone is playing, some people just step out and then they just stay within the groove. Fantastic. So, yeah, a member does not necessarily even need to be a functioning part of the body. 
And uh, I could maybe follow up with the remark on membership through a part of the, the curatorial statement of Bamako. There was a quote from Amadou Hampateba, which is the persons of the person are multiple in person, right? So like each member should be multiplied by their subjectivities, which creates a myriad different potentials, I would imagine. Maybe would you like to comment on that? Fantastic, fantastic. Um, <laughs> okay, you're completely right. So if you look at uh, Sunrise Orchestra, it is true that there's some people that just, at some point, they just drop the instrument or they're not even playing any instrument and they're just going around. It doesn't mean they don't have a function. They have a function of going around. <laughs> <laughs> and that too is important for the orchestra. Now that's very important. So the idea of the function cannot be reduced to the, the logic of productivity. So the function can just be keeping others around. Now, you know, in the middle sometimes of Thelonious Monk playing, he would just stop playing the piano and just stand up and dance around go around just everybody's playing and going crazy and he's just dancing and dancing and dancing and dancing. But does he not have a function? Of course he has a function because there too, even in his performance, he's playing a very important role in there. You know, he's even actually conducting while dancing, right? So, so I would not take away the functioning from them, but I hear you very well. Membership is a complex thing, you know, so... Yeah, I agree with you. And of course, in that multiplication of the subjectivities of that, yeah, totally, you know, Amadou Ambateba puts it perfectly. That multiplicity of persons within the person is important. And that, what, what does it actually say? Is that even if this member is not like productive on this one level, there's so many other beings in that person that are important within that constellation, you know. So, and we, we have such moments. So to make it very concrete, you'll have a moment where you have one of the people in the team might not be very active at a particular moment, but that person is a binding factor. That person, just the, her mere presence is still very important there. So, yes, on those different levels that membership functions on so, so many, many levels, if we really have to stick with the logic of membership. And I think this resonates, I mean, moving a bit further away from the question of members and membership, but the question of function and whether things that are seemingly unfunctional within the parameters or paradigms of today are really unfunctional or not. And art seems to, I think, be in this very particular position that, I mean, maybe in the past it was different, but very much so in today's uh, values and societies. I mean, I come across people who really question, in a way, the function of art in society. And I think we can just copy your response on the members, seemingly dysfunctional members being very functional and paste that into a response on art as well. And also, I mean, one of our earlier guests, Stephen Wright had said like, we may just not be aware of its function either. It exists, it's very real. So many of us do it or love it or, you know, and then yes, we might not be able to articulate the function within today's paradigm, but 
that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Yes, but in addition to that, uh, Chan, is uh, the question of functional to whom? Yeah. You know, that, that is it, you know, and that's what uh, I you know, was also trying to say, you know, because the stone lying out there might not be functional to you or to me, but it's functional to the universe. Yeah. So that is something very interesting, you know, like until a couple of decades ago, we just thought that the mycelia under the forest were just, you know, were just there. But we know well now that this network of mycelia actually sustains the trees in those forests. That the mycelia, through their sophisticated network, could actually enable one tree on one end of the forest to feed and sustain another tree a couple of kilometers away, passing it energy, passing it food, and so on and so forth. The functionality is to what purpose, to whom? You know, so... These are quite complex logics and yeah, we should continue talking about them. No, definitely. And I think maybe that's a discussion for another day, but I think what you just said links also uh, the argument against monocultures and the argument of the kind of categoric, let's say, existence that the modern era has posited on uh, human populations and also the questions of sanity and sanitation, which I know you've worked on before as well and i think there is something there as well totally cool fantastic do we have any other comments or questions well certainly <laughs> well could you maybe name us three musicians or bands that we don't know about but we totally should oh i don't know if you know about them so it's it's difficult for me to say what you don't know but maybe i can talk to you what i am listening to sounds good Yeah, that would be great. I, I do listen to a lot of different things at, at the same time. But one band I've been revisiting recently is called Kellen Kellen Orchestra. Actually, Kellen Kellen is the way you would call it, you know. And a group of musicians from the African diaspora and the African continent, so... Some of them are from Cameroon, from from Haiti, from different places, and they come and they do free jazz, if you want to call it that way. You know, with people like Brice Wasi in the middle of it, and you know, so quite quite brilliant, yeah, mus musicians. Also, listening a lot to Bikidude, who was a very famous singer from. I just keep my mind on the East African coast. So she is, she died at the age of like 103 or 104. And she was a legendary, legendary singer, you know. So she played uh, uh, tarap music. She, she was one of the, considered one of the uh, queens of uh, tarabu, which is a music that, so from Zanzibar, she is, that really, So I was talking about it in an interview I gave recently together with uh, Natasha Jinwala and to uh, Aisha Hamid. We're talking about the Afro-Asiatic Sea, also known as the Indian Ocean, you know. So I was listening to this a lot, you know, to be able to, you know, think of the sound from that space. So this is this is something I could I could recommend to you. 
I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff I listen to all the time. I've been listening uh, to Martin and Roberts this morning, the Coin Coin series, you know, Coin Coin chapter one, two, three, and four. Matana Roberts, she's a brilliant saxophonist and singer, uses speech very powerfully in her work, very intelligent, very powerful, transcendental music, you can call jazz or whatever, but she's somebody I'm listening to. And, and many, 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 many more, you know. We need a Spotify playlist of yours to be subscribed. I don't even have Spotify. I don't even know how it works. I play vinyls. When the pandemic ends, we invite you as a DJ. To... <laughs> I don't know how to DJ either. <laughs> I, could, I could come with a few vinyls and just play. Yes. But Bonaventure, like you recently mentioned on an Instagram post of yours that you were dreaming or working on a major re- retrospective on Casa. Oh, very good. <laughs> very good, sir. Yes, you know, good you mentioned that. We just lost one of the greatest musicians of our time, Jacob de Vario, who was a brilliant guitarist, fantastic musician, singer. And actually, I'm wearing this in memory of him, this. Because oh. he used to wear this all the time. So... Since he, he he passed on, I've been I've been wearing you know things like this. So it's interesting that you bring that up because I didn't. Yes, yes. It, so may so rest in peace. He was a great, great musician, and uh, the music that made kind of was more than a soundtrack to my youth because the the collective was founded in 1978, if I'm not mistaken, and they've been together since then, mostly the same core team. A few people have come and gone, and I was fortunate to be in an interview with Jocelyn Berroa, one of the the only women in the core team, uh, a few months ago. And Kassav played an incredible music that bridged the Caribbean to the African continent. You know, very they invented this music called the zouk, which in itself was music that was influenced by a lot of say Caribbean music, but also music from Congo, from Cameroon and so on and so forth, you know. So it's very sophisticated music, you know. You know, at one even point, Miles Davis was asked, who's the most important musicians of his time, you know, back then? And he said, oh, there's this Caribbean group called Kassav, you know. So imagine that kind of a shout out from Miles Davis at the time, you know. So the guys were... They were miles ahead of their own time, you know. So we lost Jacob de Vario last week. And yeah, so I've also been listening to a lot of Kassav. Yes. And I hope to do the retrospective still. I, I need to, to give some time to this. And I really need, I wrote a text. So when the pandemic started, I was doing this thing called Corona's Phonic Diaries, in which I would introduce one vinyl once in a while. And I'll write, I started with like 300 words and then it ended up being like 3,000 words for one vinyl, you know? So it was just like, what am I listening now in this period of the pandemic? And so I wrote two versions, two editions of uh, for Kassav, one on Kassav as a group, in which I talked about the, the, the aesthetic importance and the political importance of Kassav in the world, 
you know, and if you, if you look at that course, that's basically the beginning of the concept for the project I want to do. You know, to me, I consider them even more important than the philosophical movement called the Negritude, you know, because mm-hmm. I thought, you know, because everybody, while you might not be able to read Aimé Césaire or Leopoldo Senghor, everybody was listening to the music of Kassav and really enjoying it and dancing no matter your educational level, you know, and they were speaking about very important things indirectly, you know, again, bringing in poetry, which I found very important. Yep. I mean, it's amazing that we end on such a, let's say, informative note and you give us even more to explore. But I want to thank you one more time. This was Uh, mind-opening and delightful thank you. and great to hear and see you in action. Thank you. Same same uh, from my end. Really great pleasure talking to you all. And stay safe. Take good care of yourselves. And Thank you so much. We'll stay in touch. Thank you, Bonaventure. Take care. Thank you for joining us in this conversation. Make sure to check out the show notes to find out more about what we've discussed today. There's an extensive list of links and information down there. You can also visit us at ahali.space in the interweb or get some visual insights at ahali.podcast via Instagram. I guess it goes without saying, but we really appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us by subscribing, rating, following, or whatever works for you. This was Ahali Conversations with me, Jan Altai, and we hope to see you next time. Mm-hmm.